0: Michael starts now reading and explaining the text he's got before him. And after his first reading, we open the floor to questions. And the first questions to go are the ones that were submitted to me to ask of Michael. And I I submitted those already to Michael. So if you ever have an inkling to have any question about Ramana's teachings explained, just mail them in to me. Okay, Michael, it's all yours.
1: Okay. Namaskaram. Um today I'm going to start by talking about the 18th paragraph of Nana. Um, the previous paragraph, the seventeenth paragraph, Bhagavan um, ended with a sentence: prapanjate or te pol eni kolavendam. That means it is necessary to consider the world uh like a dream. So, uh, as a continuation of that, in the 18th paragraph, he begins by saying, in the first sentence, he says, um, <coughs> it, it, uh, besides saying that waking is uh, is diga, diga means long-lasting, and dream is chanita, uh momentary or lasting only for a short while, there is no other difference. Um, implying there's no other difference between them. <clears throat> in other words, what Bhagavan is saying here is, except the fact that waking is long and dream is short, there's no difference between them. However, in Guruvach Kobai, in verse uh, 560, Murgana recorded what Bhagavan said, with reference to this sentence, um, the answer that was said, that whereas dream momentarily appears and ceases, waking endures for a long time, was a reply given by acquiescing to the question asked. This seeming difference in duration is a deceptive trick or illusion that has be arisen because of the adhering of manamaya. Manamaya means mind maya, that is the, the self-deluding power that is mind. Um, so. Though Bhagavan says here that waking is long and dream is short, this is only from the perspective of the mind in the waking state. In the dream state, we don't feel it to be short. That is, why do we feel our present state to be long because we have memories going back to childhood. So we that childhood, our childhood may have been 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years ago. We have memories going back that long. So this, this present state, what the state we call waking, seems to last long, whereas dreams, from the perspective of this state, dreams seem to be short. However, when we are dreaming we also have memories going back to our childhood because in dream we seem to be awake we we it doesn't appear to us in dream that what we are then experiencing is anything other than this waking state so in dream we can remember our childhood we can remember the school we went to we can remember about maybe the friends we played with or whatever we we got so many the same memories that we have in the waking state we have in dream so while we're dreaming the dream seems to be just as long as the present state seems to be. So this to say that waking is long and dream is short, that seems to be true only from a perspective of, um, of our, our mind in this present waking state. Um, it doesn't actually apply to our perspective in dream. Um, <clears throat> so what that amounts to saying In this, as I say, in this sentence, Bhagavan says, except that waking is long and dream is short, there's no other difference between them. Since even this difference is only a seeming difference, Bhagavan's uh, conclusion is that there's absolutely no difference between waking and dream. Um, And if we consider it carefully... um, that's a very reasonable thing to say because there is nothing but we that we have no evidence but we are not now dreaming because whatever we dream now we could equally sorry whatever we experience now we could equally well experience in dream so there cannot be anything that we can experience in waking state which we can point out and say, ah, this proves that this is not a dream. Because everything that we can experience in waking state, we can also experience in dream. So uh, we have absolutely no evidence that our present state is anything other than a dream. So when we, if we consider it carefully, is it more reasonable... Uh, to take our present state to be a dream or to take it to be something that is not a dream. If we think about it carefully, it is more reasonable to assume that this is a dream than to assume it is not a dream. Because if this is a dream, a dream is a very simple state. You have a dreamer and you have the world uh, that is being dreamt. And the, the world that is being dreamt is just a creation of a dreamer's mind. So, actually, what exists in dream is only the dreamer. Uh, so, it's a very, it is, um, to put it in philosophical terms, it is ontologically a very simple state because you've just got one dreamer who is dreaming. Um, that is the only thing that actually exists in the dream, or uh, the, the only thing that has a right to claim to actually exist is the dreamer. Everything else is just a mental fabrication whereas if we take our present state to be as we normally take it to be to be a a real state we take the world to be real we take all these things to be exist independent of ourselves we believe in in the history we learned but, but long before we were born this um so many events occurred in the world that led up to the world as it is today um and um this all began, according to science, it all began, or according to a majority view among the, the, the cosmologists and the astrophysicists and so on. This all began with the Big Bang so many billions of years ago. If we accept this, we then have ontologically a far more uh, crowded um, landscape because so many things exist. In, in a dream, only the dreamer exists. If all this is existing independent of our perception of it, we we have to assume the existence of so many things. We have to assume the existence of um, some for, form of beginning for the world. Whether you say it is the, uh, whether you explain it by the Big Bang or by Genesis or by any of the other innumerable creation theories, it had it, it seems to have a beginning. Or you can argue, no, it never had a beginning. It is an everlasting world. So there's so many things we need to believe about the world which we don't actually know. We don't have any evidence, but anything that we now experience is actually anything other than a dream. So why not opt for the simpler explanation rather than a more complex explanation? There is a principle, a philosophical principle, that is um, a uh, 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 uh a guide a guide um, that that is a rule of thumb in both science and philosophy is called the principle of parsimony. The principle of parsimony means um, the it's also called Occam's razor. So according to the principle of parsimony, a simple explanation is always more likely to be true, than a complex explanation. So we should always choose the simpler explanation rather than a more complex explanation because the simpler explanation is likely to be more true. That is, for any given set of um, data, uh, uh, um, it can be explained in various different ways, but it's best to choose the simplest explanation, because that is most likely to be true. If you choose a complicated explanation, you have to make more assumptions, so there's less chance of it being true. So, but the, the, according to this principle of um, parsimony, the Occam's razor, uh, taking this world to be a dream is more reasonable been taking it to be anything but a dream. Um, so what Bhagavan says here is very reasonable. If we, if This is from the point, perspective of reasoning. Of course, Bhagavan is not talking just from the perspective of reasoning. He is talking from the perspective of a very, very deep experience. He's he talking from the perspective of the ultimate reality. So he, uh, with which he is one, um, with, with which he... Uh, he he has recognized his oneness so uh he is talking from a uh, a standpoint of of uh, infinite clarity which obviously we lack um so it's uh, both from a perspective of reasoning and from a perspective of trusting in what bhagavan says um because bhagavan is a trustworthy person um uh, it is it is reasonable to take it, but, our, but there is no difference between waking and dream. Um, <clears throat> so that's all the commentary on that small one small sentence, but it's very important to understand this. It's a very fundamental principle of Bhagavan's teachings, but there's no difference between waking and dream. We may ask, what relevance does this have to Bhagavan's central teaching, which is knowing who am I? investigating and knowing who am I. It has a lot of relevance because why is it difficult? That is knowing ourselves should be very, very simple. We're able to know so many things in this world by attending to them. Why can we not know ourselves as we actually are? Because though it is very, very simple, very easy for us to attend to ourselves, we if we attend to ourselves, we have to give up everything else. Because by attending to ourselves, we bring about the dissolution of ego. And when ego ceases to exist, everything else ceases to exist because everything exists only in the view of ego. So we need to have uh, 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 all-consuming love to know and to be what we actually are. We need to be willing to give up everything else. For the sake of knowing what we actually are otherwise we won't be able to succeed in following this path so if we recognize that this is all a dream it is much easier to free our mind from attachment to it than if we take it all to be real that is if this world is real then i then, if I um, if I work hard and um, become a millionaire or a billionaire or something, I've really achieved something. If I um, study very hard and become very learned, become a great scientist or philosopher or historian or something, I've achieved something. If I um, if I uh, go into politics and I'm successful in politics and I rise to the top and become president of the United States, I've achieved something. If, um, if, I, um, in, if I become a uh, 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 CEO of a big uh, uh, multinational corporation, I've achieved something. So we, there seem to be so many things that we can achieve in this life. But if all this is just a dream, what is the value of all these achievements? If you win the lottery in a dream, what value does that have? While you're dreaming, you're very happy. You've got a you've won a million dollars. But when you wake up, you, you and you open your bank account, there's no million dollars there. It's all it's all of no value at all. So, if we are willing to accept that this is all a dream it will help us to detach our mind from it. We will be less enamored of this world. That is why this is an important teaching. It is like all Bhagavan's teachings. They're all of practical value. Bhagavan doesn't teach us anything for no reason. What he teaches us, he teaches us for practical purpose. Um, so that's why this what Bhagavan teaches us in this paragraph is very important. Um, So, in the first sentence, he says, except the waking is long and dream is short, there's no difference. And elsewhere, he said, even this difference is not a real difference, it's only a seeming difference. So, according to Bhagavan, there's no difference between waking and dream. So, he carries on the same theme in the next sentence, in which he says, to what extent all the... Vivaharas. vibhāras mean the activities, the affairs, the transactions, or the events or happenings. So to what extent all the vivaharas that happen in waking seem to be real? To that extent, even the vibhāras that happen in dream seem at that time to be real. <clears throat> that is, so long as we are dreaming, Everything that happens in the dream seems to us to be real. The world seems to be real and all the events happening in the world seem to be real. So if, for example, we're being chased by a monster or something, that monster seems very, very real and we're very, very afraid and we're desperate to find some place to escape from it, to hide, to go into hiding so it can't catch us. So it everything that happens in dream while we are dreaming seems to be just as real as what, what is happening now. Um, there's a reason for this. That is, in, what is actually real in the dream is only ourself. Everything else is a mental, um, a mental fabrication. But since in dream, we always experience ourselves as a person in that dream world. That is, we're not watching the dream world from outside. We're watching it from inside the dream world because we take ourselves to be a person in the dream world. So the, the person we seem to be, that is, the body we seem to be in the dream, seems to be ourself. So since we are real, the body naturally seems to us to be real. And since the body is a part of the dream world, the whole dream world seems to be real that is the, this body can't be real and the rest of the world unreal if this body is real the rest of the world must be real so we superimpose our own reality on the body we take to be ourselves and thus we superimpose our own reality on the world so what is actually real is only ourselves but all these things seem to be real so long as we're dreaming however As soon as we wake up from a dream, that is, as soon as we leave that dream and come to this dream, our identification switches from that dream body to this body. Now this body seems to be real. That body no longer seems to be real because it no longer seems to be I. So as soon as we wake up from a dream, what a moment before seemed to us to be so real we immediately recognize, oh, it was just a dream. It was all unreal. It was just a, a mental fabrication, a pigment of my own imagination. And None of that was real. We recognize that. Why? Because our identification with the dream body is severed as soon as we wake up. Since we no longer take that dream body to be ourself, it no longer seems to be real. And therefore, the world no longer seems to be real. But now, because we take this body to be ourself, This body seems to be real, and hence this whole world seems to be real. So, this is the reason why the world will always seem to be real. So long as we take ourselves to be a body, so long as we experience ourselves as a body, the whole world will seem to be real. So, this is the reason why the world seems to us to be so real. So, even though we learn from Bhagavan that the world is unreal, it still seems to us to be real so long as we take ourselves to be a body. Um then in the third sentence of this paragraph, uh Bhagavan says, In dream, the mind takes another body. That means that implies in dream the mind takes another body to be itself. This is the th- this is why I was talking about this. It's because of our identification with the dream body, but the dream world seems to be real. It's because of our identification with this body, but this world now seems to be real. Um and then he says, in the uh, next and the last sentence, um, in both waking and dream, thoughts and names and forms uh, uh, occur at one time or occur simultaneously. That is, thoughts means um, that that is the implication of this is what he means by names and forms is all the objects of the world. So these objects appear. Um, at the same time as thoughts, so long as there are thoughts, the world the world seems to be full of objects. When there are no thoughts, as in sleep, there are no objects, uh, but we are not aware of any objects. So, as Bhagavan said earlier in the um, in the fourth paragraph of Nana, what is called mind is an adiseya shakti, an extraordinary power that exists in atmasarupa, the real nature of oneself. It makes all thoughts appear when one looks, excluding all thoughts, solitarily there is no such thing as mind. Therefore, thought alone is the nature of the mind. And then he goes on to say, excluding thoughts, there is not separately any such thing as world. In sleep, there are no thoughts, and consequently, there is no world. Um, um, in waking and dream, there are thoughts, and consequently, there is also a world. So according to Bhagavan, the world is nothing but thoughts. And he says the same in the, at the end of the 14th paragraph. He says, jagam embadu ninebe. That means what is called the world is only thoughts. Uh, and then he goes on to say, when the world uh, disappears, uh, that is when thought ceases, the mind experiences happiness when the world appears; it experiences dukkha, suffering, dissatisfaction. So, according to Bhagavan, the world is nothing but thoughts. So that's what he, that's what he's implying here in this sentence, when he says thoughts and names and forms, in this context, names and forms, Nama Rupangal, refers to the objects of the world. These appear at the same time as thoughts, and they disappear at the same time as thoughts, because they are all nothing but thoughts. <clears throat> that is, usually we distinguish between the thoughts that are... Uh, that we alone are aware of and what are going on inside our mind and the objects of the world which seem to be outside but actually those objects of the world are only inside just like in, the, in dream we seem to experience an external world but where where is that external world it's actually in our <laughs> own mind it appears only in our own mind, and it's nothing but our own thoughts that appear as that that world. Bhagawan is saying exactly the same is the case with this uh world. Where did, Where is this world, this vast universe that extends so far in time mm. and in space? It goes back so many billions of years to the Big Bang or to Genesis or whenever it began, and it it stretches for so many billions of light years. such a vast universe of time and space. Where is all this vast space contained? It's all contained within the space of our own mind. Because it's only in our own mind that it appears. Has anyone seen any world outside their mind? Obviously not. It's only in the mind. So according to Bhagavan, the objects of the world are nothing but thoughts. So according to Bhagavan, what we now take our present state, but we now seems to us to be waking is actually just a dream. So just like the, the the world we see in a dream is just our own mental fabrication, this world is our own mental fabrication. It has no existence independent of our perception of it. So this is what Bhagavan teaches us in this eighteenth paragraph. Um. Uh. Ted, shall I go on to deal with the the questions that you emailed to me? Because it just so happens, that, but but this is very um, this is sure. very uh, relevant to the what this paragraph is very relevant to the um, first question that you sent me. So uh, I would I-
0: say yes in one minute since you've done it the first part. Real quickly, uh, just a follow up question on yes. what you've been oh, talking certainly, about. Oh, certainly, I'm not sure how to express it, and I'm not sure if it makes any sense. Since uh, it's obviously a dream when I, when I awake to the world mm. uh, to, in the morning, yeah. uh, all I see is a mental image of what I humanly think of as reality, yeah. and yet in, re, in true reality, it's nothing but a dream.
1: Mm.
0: What about those who walk the earth today who are awakened, let's say? Their answer their questions have been answered, they know who they are. Why do they still find themselves in the dream or is that
1: just another twist of the dream? <laughs> for um, well <laughs> we, this is where we need a deep we need to think deeply about Bhagavan's teachings. That is, there is a myth. That myth is called self-realized people. There are so many self-realized people in this world, aren't there? We, we, hear, we, we hear about them all the day, they, all, all, all the time. They're offering self-realization um, intensive courses, and they're giving lectures and everything. So there are so many who, who claim to be self-realized. But is there actually any such thing as a self-realized person? Could there ever be such a thing as a self-realized person? Not in the dream, I don't think. Not not in any state whatsoever, because what is self-realization? Self-realization means knowing ourselves as we actually are. What we actually are is not a person. What we actually are is the infinite whole, pure awareness, pure being. So if we are self-realized, we are not a person. If we are a person, we are not self-realized. So the very idea of a self-realized person is a contradiction in terms. I would think so. So it, there's no such thing as a self-realized person. However, there seem to be self-realized persons like Bhagavan. Bhagavan. There's no doubt Bhagavan was self-realized. And in our view, Bhagavan seems to be a person. That is, at the age of 16, he got an uh, intense fear of death. As a result of that fear of death, his mind went within, and he attained self-realization. And then for another 54 years, he lived in this world. A, a few months later, he traveled to Tiruvannamalai, and he lived in Tiruvannamalai for 54 years, giving us all these teachings. So in our view, Bhagavan seems to be a self-realized person, because there's no doubt he's self-realized. And to us, he seems to be a person just like us. So where is the contradiction? The truth is, as Bhagavan made clear, he is not what he seems to us to be. Because we take ourselves to be a person, he seems to us to be a person, but he is not the person he seems to be. That's why when Bhagavan was asked about his real identity, he said, Ariyati Tarajibara Dahavari Ari Paramatuman Arunachala Ramanan. That is, he the question he was uh, he was asked a question in a Malayali verse, asking him which god he's an incarnation of. Because some devotees took him to be an incarnation of um some said no, he's Shiva himself. And they, they were all, all sorts of ideas people had. So this person asked, Are you this god or that god, or which god are you? Basically, with the gist of the Malayalam verse. So bhagavan replied in the first two lines of his reply he said arunachala ramana is paramatman the supreme self that blissfully exists as awareness in the cave of the heart lotus of all different jivas beginning with hari hari means lord Vishnu. so from the highest god to the smallest, uh, most insignificant insect in the heart of all sentient beings, that which is shiny as awareness, that is the fundamental awareness I am, that is Arunacharamana. So he is not the person he seems to be. He is that which is shiny in our heart as I. And then he tells us how to how we can find that out from our own experience. In the second two lines of that verse, he says... Um, parivalulam uruha heart melting with love that is love is the key to success in this path so heart melting with love nala reaching the cave where that sublime supreme dwells uh arrivam tirava the eye of awareness opening nijam you will know the reality you'll know the truth you'll know your real nature adhuvalyam, it will reveal itself. So, Bhagavan reveals who he is and he also tells us how we can find that out from our own experience by turning within with heart-melting love. So, why then does Bhagavan appear to us to be a person? This is the working of grace. That is, what is grace? Bhagavan is our own real nature. He is what we actually are. So, in his view we are nothing other than himself so he has infinite love for us as himself so whether we are a good person or a bad person even the most evil people in the world bhagavan has equal love for all because he doesn't see us as people he sees us as himself so his love is equal to all, equal for all and his in our experience his love it we, we experience his love as what we call grace. So the, his grace is the infinite love that he has for us as himself. So it is grace that has appeared in the form of the of person called Bhagavan Ramana. His grace, which is himself, has appeared in that form because we are looking outwards, seeking happiness outside ourselves. It's necessary for him to appear in a human form in order to tell us The happiness you are seeking does not lie outside. The happiness you are seeking is your own real nature. You are that. Seek that happiness within yourself. So it it was necessary for him to appear in human form as if he is a person just like us in order to tell us the term within. But he is not that person. It's only in our view that he seems to be that person. What he actually is, the pure awareness I am, but is shiny in the heart of each and every one of us. So um, we can say, oh, but Bhagavan, um, he lived for 54 years in Tirunamalai. He answered questions. He wrote poems. He cut vegetables. Um, he went for walks around the hill. He did all sorts of things. So is it not obvious that he knows the world just like we know it? Um, if we ask him, Bhagavan, do you not see this world? He said, yes, I see exactly what you see but where lies the difference we see all this as so many names and forms whereas he sees it as it actually is namely as himself so we see it as many he sees it as one so he what he is seeing and what we are seeing is exactly the same but how he sees it and how we see it is radically different he sees the, the rope as a rope we see the rope as a snake, so this the is difference very... is in our outlook. But he, so he is—he knows everything, but he knows everything as it is, not as we know it. Yeah, this, this is hugely
0: interesting. Uh, I hope to everybody as it is as much to me. A real quick follow-up question on that, and if anybody else wants to ask about this topic,
1: yeah, yeah, you sure. Before we sure. get
0: into the questions, now would be the time, and and I'll start it off by saying. Uh, I interview people more and more because mm. it's where I am with my own spiritual walk uh, who are said to be awakened. They mm. don't say it. Others might say it. And that's why mm. I have an interest in. Uh, they don't claim to be self-realized, but they claim to have had some sort of an experience that lasts of the, of an awakening. And with several of the people, not all of them, they say something that at first struck me as odd, but now you've just helped me to understand it. What they've said is that the first recognition they've had in this awakening, caused by goodness knows what, usually spontaneously, is that wherever they cast their gaze, the dog in the middle of the field, the tree looming over him, or the bus, everything is God. They see everything as the divine. They see every individual as the divine. And all they see is God. And I, I that sounded just strange or a little odd to me. But mm. I think you sort of touched on that in describing what Ramana must have seen as he walked the earth. Yes, but, but
1: one thing imp- important to remember, that is uh, Bhagavan doesn't say he sees each thing as God. He says he sees only God. Uh-huh. Well, okay, that's splitting hairs a little bit. But Nobody, got- no, but it's very, very important because it is we who see God as many things. We can say he sees many things as God, but what that means is that, okay, let's take an example. If If you see a rope as a snake mm-hmm. and someone else tells you that they see it as a rope, In your view, it may seem that they are seeing the snake as a rope, but actually they're not seeing the snake at all. They're seeing only the rope because there's no snake there at all. It's only in our view that it seems to be a snake. So we say Bhagavan is seeing this world as God, but actually Bhagavan's experience is not seeing the world as God. It is seeing God alone. Well, that's great. Anybody else here have a question about it? It may why? sound like hair splitting, but it's very important to understand this. Because otherwise, we we are, we are trying to imagine seeing many as one. Yeah. If as Bhagavan said, that is there's a major school in Vedanta called Beda Abeda Vedanta. That is this is this is actually uh, uh, forms of Abeda Abeda Vedanta uh were were prevalent even before a uh became uh, 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 sort of rose to the uh forefront because there are many things in the in the um in the Upanishads and the Bhagavad Gita and the Brahma Sutra but seem to imply multiplicity. And there are many things that seem to imply oneness. So they came to the conclusion that there is difference in not- Beda means difference. Abheda means no difference. So Beda Abeda means that you'll see that there's difference in non-difference and non-difference in difference. Bhagavad, and so that was a very ancient interpretation of Vedanta. Um dweta Dvaita is a variation on that. And most of the later forms of Vedanta were based on Veda Beda Vedanta. In fact, the Gaudiya tradition, that is the what is nowadays called the Hare Krishna tradition, that is their philosophy is called a chintia Beda Vedanta. A means it's inconceivable. Because how can you conceive how difference there can be differences and non-differences and non-differences? But according to Bhagavan, if, there is, if you see differences, you do not see non-difference. If you see non-difference, you do not see difference. But two, you cannot. You cannot. You have to either choose to see difference or you choose to see non-difference. The experience of Banyani is a abeda, absolute no difference whatsoever. So we are trying to understand his experience from our expect perspective. So he say, we say he sees all this as one. No, he sees one as one. He doesn't see all this at all. He sees only one because only one is actually there. It's we who are seeing that one as many. Mm
2: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: Very important distinction. Thanks. Yes. Thanks for clarifying that. Right. Uh, Let's take a real quick check on uh, Liam, Marie, Michael, Mickey, Purnima, all of you. Does anybody have a question they'd like to ask on this topic before we move in? to the next round, uh, round of questions. Just put your hand up or talk if you do. Marie, how about you? You just made yourself visible. You're from France, right?
2: Yes, yes. Um, no, no, it's just there remains um, to see, like to stop seeing many, but what, like I don't have a question about it, mm-hmm. I guess. Okay how can we stop
1: seeing many so long as we are looking away from ourselves we are seeing many because that is what is the basic duality is subject and object so long as subject so long as you have a subject seeing an object you've got a duality there one subject is seeing many objects. So so long as we are looking away from ourselves at anything other than ourself, we are caught up in multiplicity, in, in duality, because there's ourself and there's whatever else we know. So the only way to go beyond duality, to go beyond multiplicity, is to stop seeing other things, to see only ourself. If we see only ourself, this ego, which rises stands and flourishes by experiencing multiplicity this ego having nothing to hold on to if, it, if, if we as ego try to hold on to our own being we will thereby subside back into our being remain as we actually are that is our being is the source from which we've risen as ego so we by trying to hold on to our being we subside back into our being and remain as our being our being is one so, when ego subsides, everything else subsides along with it because all objects appear only in the view of a subject. Without a subject, there cannot be any objects. So, the way to see all as one, or the way to see seeing all and to see only the one, is to see ourselves alone. Because only by the, the only non dual, so long as you're attending to anything other than yourself, there's a duality. There's you, the one who's attending, and the thing you're attending to. If you attend only to yourself, that alone is advaita. That What is the correct practice of Advaita? It can only be self-attention, because attending to anything other than yourself is duality. So what Bhagavan has taught us is the correct practice of Advaita. Attend to nothing other than yourself. If we attend to nothing other than ourself, ego will thereby subside and everything else will subside along with it because everything else appears only in the view of ego. How do we know that? Because in waking and dream, we rise as ego and we're aware of many things. In sleep, ego subsides and all the manyness disappears. So manyness appears only in the view of ego. So instead of the ego looking at the many, if it looks at itself, the one, it will subside back into its source, which is one and non-dual, and that alone will remain. Because that alone is what is always real. That alone is what actually exists.
2: And speaking for myself, at least I know, I can see that I still want, I, I still want to experience objects.
1: That is the whole problem. That is the problem we are all up against. This is the this liking to experience objects is what are what are called vishaya bastanas, and that is the obstacle we're up against. And it is the very nature of ego to have vishaya bastanas. That is the vishaya bastanas are not ego, but it is the nature of ego to have vishaya bastanas. Because see what Bhagavan says about ego. In verse 25 of Oludunapadu, he describes it as a formless uh, uh, pay. Pei means a, a phantom or an evil spirit. So it's, it's formless, it's got no form of its own, but it cannot stand without grasping form. So he says about ego, grasping form it comes into existence grasping form it stands grasping and feeding on forms it flourishes abundantly leaving form it grasps form so the forms are all things other than itself because ego is formless since ego is formless any form must be something other than ego so the very nature of ego is to hold on to things other than itself So as ego, until we are willing to surrender ourselves completely, we will continue having a liking to hold on to things other than ourselves. And that those likings to hold on to other things are what are called Vishabhasanas. And that is the whole problem we're up against. As Bhagavan said, this path of self-investigation is the easiest of all things. What can be easier than attending to ourselves and knowing ourselves? If we think about it, yes, it, what Bhagavan says is obviously true. But to us, it seems very difficult. So, why does, when Bhagavan says it's easy, and when simple logic also tells us it's easy, why does it seem so difficult? It seems difficult because we don't want it. We are not yet willing to let go of everything else. That's why he says in the next verse, verse 26 of Vuludnaptu, If ego comes into existence, everything comes into existence. Everything means all objects or phenomena. Why do they come into existence only when ego comes into existence? Because they seem to exist only in ego's view, because ego is a subject, everything else are objects. So objects appear only in the view of a subject. So if ego comes into existence, everything comes into existence. If ego doesn't exist, everything doesn't exist. Uh, Ego itself is everything. That is just like what is the dreamer seeing? The dreamer is seeing a vast dream world, but what is what dreamer is actually seeing, it is seeing itself as that dream world. So likewise, ego is seeing itself as all this. So that's why Bhagwan says ego itself is everything. Then he conc- in the last sentence of that verse, he says, Adalal, therefore, um yadu idu investigating what this is meaning investigating what ego is uh yabam or is giving up everything so we we need to be willing to give up everything that is the price we have to pay for self realisation is to give up everything else, including ourselves, this person, this ego that we seem to be, this also has to be given up. Then only can we know ourselves as we actually are. So the reason we, we, are, not, we are all here still talking about this subject, we, the reason we are not self realized is because we are not yet willing to give up everything. So how can we become willing to give up everything? by persevering in the practice. That is why we need to continue practicing persistently until this ego is completely annihilated. Or as Bhagavan says in in the 11th paragraph of Nana, he begins by saying, so long as the basanas exist in the mind, so long the investigation who am I is necessary. So so long as we have the slightest liking to know anything other than ourselves, the investigation, who am I, is necessary. And why do we know things other than ourselves? Only because we have a liking to do so. If we give up the liking to know other things, ego will subside and everything will subside along with it. So it's all, that's why Bhagavan said, the spiritual path is nothing but a battle within our own will. He said in the Puranas, there are so many stories about battles between the Devas and the Asuras. The Devas are the gods, the Asuras are the demons. So there are so many stories about how the gods overcome the demons. Bhagavan said that is all just—they uh, all this uh, deva-sura yuddha, the warfare between gods and demons, is nothing but the warfare going on in the heart of every true spiritual aspirant. The warfare between our love to turn within and surrender ourselves and our residual desires to go outwards, our vasanas. So, the whole spiritual battle, the whole spiritual path is nothing but a battle fought within our own will. And this is what Bhagavan refers to in Akshramlai when he prays: Pokum varavumil poduveli niraru, pora tankat arunachala. Arunachala, in the common space where, uh, where there's no coming and going, show me the warfare of grace. The warfare of grace is nothing but this warfare between our sattvasana, our liking to to hold on to our being and subside back into our being, the liking to surrender ourselves completely on the one hand and all our visheya-vasanas on the other hand. So this is a great warfare that is going on in
0: our heart. You say the spiritual path, Michael, is uh, nothing but a battle of our own will. Is this maybe the best reason why the daily practice of self-inquiry is so very important? It's absolutely essential,
1: yes, yes.
0: I seem to know people who, who feel they're there. They understand it intellectually deeply enough that they don't have to continue to practice it so often. But they're fighting that will, the strength of that will, aren't they?
1: Yes, yes, yes. Bhagavan said, so long as the so shayavasanas are there, that is, so long as you're aware of anything other than yourself, so long as you're aware of multiplicity, this practice is absolutely necessary. Because why are we aware of multiplicity? Because our mind is going outwards. Our mind goes outwards under the sway of the shayavasanas. So so long as we're under the sway of the Vishabasanas, we cannot surrender ourselves. So to weaken the Vishabhasanas and strengthen the Sat Basana, there is no way other than practice. That's why Bhagavan insisted practice is absolutely necessary. That's Anybody why else? that's why this spiritual path is trivialized by many people nowadays who say, oh, practice isn't necessary. All you need to do is to, to recognize that everything is awareness. This is just trivializing. This is a very, very serious business. If we want to know what we actually are, we shouldn't be, we won't be satisfied with mere uh, platitudes like, oh, everything is awareness. There's no ego. There's nothing to worry about. There's no problems. That that is that is just that is meaningless. So long as we are still aware of multiplicity, we have a problem, and we do not know ourselves as we actually are.
0: Thank you for underscoring that.
1: Really, really important. Yeah. That's behavior. why Bhagavan's tea That is this is where mi- that is. Many people say uh, this neo-adwaita has originated from uh, Ramana Maharshi, from Bhagavan. That is a total misrepresentation because Neo-Advaita says you need not do anything. You, all you need to do is just to see that everything is awareness, see that there's no ego. This is a, the diametric opposite of Bhagavan's teaching. Bhagavan's teaching is practice is absolutely necessary. There is no way around it.
0: Well that seems to be creeping in more and more as I scan the dial of people who talk on this subject if you listen to L- YouTube at all. Yeah yeah. I, walking,
1: it's it, very it's, pop- of no. course it, which which would be more popular? Someone who tells you you need not do anything, you've already got everything, you're you're fine. That will exactly. uh, everyone we all like to hear that. Oh we've got no problem <laughs> fine. Nice nice nice. But if someone tells you you've got to work damn hard to achieve this Ah uh, no no! I don't like that. It'll naturally it'll never be popular because people. It's only precisely. it'll always only be a small minority who are willing to to put in the hard work required.
0: That's really precisely why I'm so attracted to Ramana. He's the first teacher, I mean, in broad terms. Who's really asked me to roll up my shirt sure sleeves and work at this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, not just consider it, not just believe in it, not just understand it, but work it. Work the
1: program on a regular he, he, basis. I think in the Bible somewhere, I think Jesus or someone said, many are called, but few are chosen. Why yeah. is that? Because very few are ready to put in the hard work. Ready, very few are ready to persevere in this practice. Wonderful. Anybody else have a
3: follow-up question to this before we move on? I have a question. Sure. Yes. Uh, Michael, so if, if one is, let's just say, kind of more strongly identified with the body, but understands that, yes, the body goes to sleep and then it has this dream, this mental fabrication, wakes up into what it considers a reality, but understands at some level, yes, this is also a dream i may be able to touch it feel it sense it smell it taste it but okay i understand in some level that it's a dream but then there's also when you're in this waking state thoughts that you have to deal with that you don't there, there's not a um there's not a fine i mean there's not a uh a, a, a distinction I, I guess you can say or a a, a there's no veil that kind of count, that that veil that, that hides your thoughts from reality. It's like you kind of, I mean, with your physical eyes, you see the world, but then with your mind, you see thoughts, and they kind of yes. all can happen at the same time. Yes, yes. So your thoughts are happening also at the same time that you are seeing this world. Yes. In yes. the waking state, but in dream, you don't always see those thoughts. You just see kind of like the mental fabrication. And it's only in the waking state that we can make progress. It's only in the waking state that we can overcome our ego and, and, and be more self-attentive. So, I, I mean, there's are there levels
1: that we have to no. dive no. deep within? No. But it, 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 uh, what we experience in dream is exactly the same as we experience in waking. In dream, we're, we also, we're aware of that th- there's a world out there and I'm thinking about it. I see something. Oh, I like that. I don't like that. So we, we, we're aware of both the, the thoughts that seem to be in our mind and the world that seems to be out there. But it, there's no difference at all between what uh, the nature of our experience in waking and the nature of our experience in sleep. They're exactly the same. So if we can, if we can follow this self-investigation in the waking state, we can equally well follow it in dream. And if we, are, if we are serious about following it in the waking state, in the waking state, so often our mind is going outwards. And then we remember, we try to bring it back to ourselves. The same will be happening in dream if we're really following this practice.
3: So, so in our dream state, if, if, if we're very conscious of this, practice if we're if if we're trying our best to be self-attentive in the waking state when we do go to sleep let's say we like well like Bhagavan said if you know if, if 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 we go to sleep practicing self inquiry or whatever meditation practice, that will continue through the dream state, and then when we wake up, we will continue that. So that's that's also the same. With, I mean, it's, it's it, if it's just a matter of how much effort we put into this waking state that will continue through the waking, and then back into the waking state yeah. until
1: yeah, yeah, yeah,
3: it becomes effortless.
1: It it never becomes effortless until the one who needs to make the effort uh, disappears. That is, so long as ego is there, it will have vishaya and effort is needed to avoid being swayed by the vishaya So holding on to a self attentiveness always requires effort until ego is destroyed. Then there's no. Uh, then we go beyond effort. But we, we shouldn't think that a time will come when this will become a, a walk in the park. It'll all be effortless. No, the struggle will go on till the very end. Okay, last call for a question. In on fact, this topic. What, one we'll more thing. As we go deeper and deeper in this path, the resistance will be stronger and stronger. Supposing a group of hunters are hunting a tiger, they, they've only got spears and um and uh knives. Uh, so they're hunting the tiger and eventually they surround the tiger. The tiger is wounded by so many um, so many uh, jabs of the spears and knives and things. So the tiger is very, uh, uh, much, it's, it's seriously wounded and very much weakened. But when it is surrounded by those hunters, will it not fight back with ever greater ferocity? Likewise with the vasanas, the weaker they get, the more fiercely they will fight back. Hmm. so it we shouldn't think it's one day going to become just a walk in the park no it's a struggle to the very end the warfare continues until the until the enemy commander-in-chief is is uh, captured and executed the enemy commander-in-chief is the ego and at the same time the the soldiers of the enemy army and the the commander in chief is ego. So they that those Vishans will continue fighting until their commander-in-chief is um is uh is captured and killed.
3: And in the end, yeah, go ahead Mark. just to be funny. We have seen the enemy and the enemy is us.
1: Yes, <laughs> we, we, we ourselves are the enemy. We have a question. That's why Man we now. need to surrender ourselves. <laughs> And when we surrender ourselves, what will remain is only ourselves.
4: Um, Michael, it, my for a while, I, I may have had that neo-advaita understanding of, you know no effort. It just unfolds by itself. And lately I've been it seems like drawn more into um, being more attentive, but not really, it's not really a, you know, teeth gritting, you know, fight kind of effort. It's just more, just noticing from the perspective where I am, I, I naturally am noticing much more often um, my mind and, and, and when I do that I, I'm noticing from the perspective of an open spacious awareness you can say. I'm, I'm seeing more and more that okay these thoughts are my mind but in the background are more coming more into the foreground is an open, spacious awareness that really, that really is making no effort. It's just watching everything. So the the thing you just said about, I mean, I I can't doubt your word, but it doesn't really seem to be what my experience is, as far as the effort gets more and more intense. Okay. Uh, as the Vassana's. Are
1: thinning okay. out. Okay, so we, we, need to be, we need to be very clear about what we are doing. We are not just—that is—it is possible to withdraw our mind from other things and to go into a sort of uh, a state of blank, as people describe it, a state in which we are we are um, sort of midway between. Um, Engrossed in thoughts and falling asleep, but we are not actually holding on to our being. Um, this is what they try to achieve in yoga. For example, in yoga, by pranayama and other means, the the aim of yoga, as Patanjali says in the second sutra of uh, well, he begins he begins the main text of the Yoga Sutra by saying. By defining yoga, yoga's is vritti nirodaha That means yoga is curbing or restraining or stopping the chittabrities. vrittis Chitta vrittis means the activities of the mind. So the aim in yoga is to bring the mind to a standstill. Bhagavan said that is not the point. If you bring the mind to a standstill... If you take that far enough, you end up just in layer. That layer may be called Nivikalpa Samadhi, but that's actually of no spiritual benefit at all. What is required is not only to stop thoughts, it is to attend to ourselves. In fact, Bhagavan says, in the sixth paragraph of Nana, he says, however many thoughts arise, so what? we should not be concerned about thoughts. But when thoughts appear, to whom do they appear? We should be interested in turning our attention back to ourselves. So the key to this practice is being self-attentive, attending to ourselves, not just experiencing a blank, not just experiencing a a calm and peaceful state of mind. Yes, by various meditation techniques, you can get into a, a state of mental quiescence that is not our real nature mental quiescence is not our real nature our real nature is beyond the mind beyond the, yes. the states of mental activity and mental quiescence we, we need yes. to penetrate through so what we are trying to hold on to is our own being yeah. That, that yeah, our own being is beyond the blank because the blank when you say it's a blank that's a mental evaluation of that state yeah. we call it a blank it's only from the perspective of the mind it's a blank
4: That's not that's not really what I'm trying to convey, Michael. Okay. It's like when I first had this experience, I for the first time I could feel free from being a prisoner of thoughts. And my identity recognized a deeper aspect that was an open spaciousness that was totally fulfilled. It wasn't empty. It was totally fulfilled, yet separate from the mind. And it felt um, that's the deepest experience I've ever had and actually it's always been there since, since I first really noticed it. It's never really left me. It's always there, but I don't always identify with it. I mean, I'll get like, I'll watch a movie, and then I'm all involved in the movie, but then even during the movie at any moment, I can just notice that open without really like qualities of, um, it just, I, I I don't think I'm conveying to you exactly, because uh, yeah, what I, you were saying doesn't I, I, really resonate with me. Okay,
1: I, I appreciate what you're saying. Um, such states we do experience, but we need to go deeper. Because yeah. a, so long as there's... So long as there's an experience of multiplicity, so long as there's an experience of changing states of mind, sometimes experiencing that more intensely, sometimes less intensely, we, we haven't yet gone deep enough, so we have to go deeper, go deeper. And the deeper we go, the more we will find the urge to come out again, the urge to attend to other things. But that urge to attend to other things, the, the urges to attend to other things are what are called vishaya vasanas. So the, the deeper we go in this path, the more clearly we will be aware of the vasanas and the, the nature of those vasanas. For example, a person who is... Um, who is totally engrossed in an outward life. I mean, an ordinary person, a person I'm not saying a, a good person or a bad person, just any person who, who is engrossed in their life as a person, engrossed in all the, the problems and the joys and the sorrows of life and everything. Ordinary people, people who've not taken interest in these things, if we, if you talk to them about vasanas, it won't be at all clear to to them what you're talking about. It's only when we, to the extent that we go within, but we begin to recognise the nature of vasanas, that is, you will find people who have who have begun on the path of meditation, they will they will talk about thoughts, but thoughts of a gross manifestation of vasanas. The thoughts are not a problem. The problem is the Varsana, the inclination to attend to those thoughts. So the deeper we go within, the more we clearly will be aware of the the Varsanas and the nature of the Varsanas and of the strength of the Varsanas, how those Varsanas keep on drawing our mind outwards. The only way is, when I said it's a battle, I didn't mean it's a great struggle. That is. It's very difficult to put this into words, but the approach we need to take is a very, very gentle but firm approach. We need to, we, 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 this isn't like having a big battle with our thoughts. It's not like that. It's a very subtle inner battle that's going on between our liking to go out and our liking to go back within. And we need to be trying to be swayed by that liking to go within, to hold on to our being more and more firmly, that is the way to weaken the Vesheya Varsana, the liking to go outwards.
4: It seems that the liking to hold on to our own being, as you put it, it becomes more and more alluring because it feels good. Yes. But I have found it found like when I go to a program... You know, I'll get all blissed out at a program. But I used to right away want to, as soon as the program's over, run out and enjoy it. You know, my mind would want to do, oh, this is great. All oh, music. Well, let's get some food, you know, blah, blah, blah. But now I find that I'm much more quiet. I'm much more content just being with the, the depth. It, it, it just is more more magnetic for me now
1: yes yes yes
4: that's what you mean
1: yes 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 we just have to go deep that is however far we progressed along the path we need to go deeper we need to go deeper so whatever states of mind come and go however blissful or however pleasant or however peaceful those states of mind may be so long as there is coming and going, we need to hold on more and more to our being, and slowly, slowly, we extricate ourselves from this this tasting going outwards. But it is a, it is a, it, it's a struggle, but not a not a when, when we say a struggle, it's, it, it's, any words we use are potentially misleading. It is, it is a very subtle inner struggle, a struggle within our own will a struggle between our inclination to go outwards and our love to go back within.
0: Yeah, it's a struggle that's interrupted frequently by distractions, at least for me, but that's another question.
1: The uh, distractions are really a ends. result of the Vasanas.
0: Yeah.
4: yeah, right,
1: exactly. It's
4: really clear. That's, that's to
2: me. Thank you so much, really Every
0: mm-hmm. single day I'm aware of them in myself. Mm-hmm. In fact, just turning my attention towards the subject of Vasanas, seem to bring up things from my past I've not recalled before or I've yeah. not thought of before, but they're nonetheless there working yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. to maintain themselves. Let's go to Marie for a final question before we go to the questions that were sent into you, because uh, <laughs> one of them, these is very good, I want to get to. Yes, where's Marie, where is she? Um,
2: yes. There you are. You, you say that um, it becomes harder, like, For me it becomes harder and harder to turn within in the sense like I feel worse than before like even more engrossed with the world and and I don't know if it's the vishaya vasanas that are stronger or just my will to go within is weaker than before.
1: Um, There's another factor to bear in mind here that is as we go deeper in this path we We understand more clearly what it is to be self-attentive. That is, when we start off, we've got some vague idea what it means to be self-attentive, but it's not a very clear idea. So at first, we are not going very deep in our self-attentiveness. So it may seem relatively easy, but as we as we go deeper in the practice, our the clarity of our understanding of what actually self is, we, we we recognize it more and more clearly. And then and then we recognize more and more how little we actually want that. So it, it, this is another factor that is the fact, but it, it may have seemed easier at first because we didn't we didn't clearly know what it was we were supposed to be doing but as we understand more and more clearly what self-attentiveness actually is it 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 requires to let go of everything else and to hold on just to our being and then we it becomes clearer to us how little liking we have to hold on to ourselves as Bhagavan says in another verse of do not be like Mukila Mungatu, Instead of being like a mirror held before a noseless man, uh, uplift me and embrace me. That that what does that mean? It means that is as we go deeper and deeper within, we recognize more and more how little love we actually have to go within. So it does feel like we are. We're, this practice is like a, a a mirror to us, showing us our our noseless, ugly face. <laughs> we see we see ourselves. That ourself means as the mind more and more clearly. The more we try to see ourselves as we actually are, that is the more we, the, the deeper we go within. The, the greater clarity with which we're able to recognize all the, all the blemishes and defects in our mind. Sadhu used to give an analogy for this. He said, if you see a crescent moon, you can't see any craters. Even if you see a half moon, the craters are very, very vague. Only when the moon is full do you see all the craters very clearly. Likewise, as the mind gets purer and purer, the imperfections are stand out more and more clearly. Good so enough. we recognize how little love we have to go within, only to the extent to which we go within. Well, it, is, a- is that meaningful to you? Is what I'm saying? Does course, it, yeah, it's to very that? uplifting.
2: It's very uplifting. I, I do feel like it's my desires are even stronger or my attachments, but... Um,
1: They're not stronger, but you, you're more clearly aware of them because your mind is being clarified by this practice.
2: Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, they seem to more... be
1: stronger because you're more clearly aware of them. Just like the, the craters seem to be clearer, the craters on the moon seem to be clearer, the brighter the moon is, the fuller the moon is. Yeah.
2: Well, that's very encouraging.
1: Very,
0: very much so. Yeah. Thank you. Thank Hi. you very yeah, much. You know, uh, go ahead and get the last call before we move on to the
4: other questions. When the moon is full, maybe we can see the craters more, but we also can enjoy the beauty of the moon. Yes that we yes. couldn't see so good when it was a crescent.
0: Yes, yes. And, and and Michael, just a real quick postscript here. I want to thank you doubly for reminding me that if I heard you correctly. That my own distractions—we all have them—are
1: in fact part of the vasanas. My own it's distractions. all. Really everything is vasanas. It's all vasanas. The whole world is nothing but uh, your own vasanas. The the expansion, the, the sprouting of your own vasanas. That is, Bhagavan used the term vishaya vasanas. Vishaya means objects or phenomena. So the vasanas are the seeds that give rise to all the objects and phenomena. Why does all these phenomena appear? Because we have a liking to experience them. So every experience we have is a sprouting of our viseya vasanas. The whole world, the whole universe is a sprouting of our viseya vasanas. And I often give
0: false importance to the distractions that pop up in my mind because I think they popped up for a reason. Well, they have, to distract me from myself. Exactly,
1: exactly, exactly. Okay, Uh, thank you. So we find find lots of excuses in these distractions. We've got far more important things to do. We've got to pay the bills. We've got to do this. We've got to do that. We've got... um, So everything is so so important, except turning within. But actually, nothing is important. The only important thing is turning within. Let's go to the questions now that I sent you.
0: And please, people, when you ever think of a question that pops up in your mind, it doesn't care where you are, just send it to me and I'll put it on our list that we ask Michael at a time like this. And there's one in particular of the three I sent you yesterday and today, Michael, that I think ties in enormously to your reading today. Maybe I'll let you choose the one you want to start with.
1: Well, but, um, I, this one about uh, Guru Kukovai, verse yes, 534. That one, yes. Um, that is, I'll read what, what was written. Um, okay, good. This is, Romain has written it. Yes. Um I have felt anxiety over this for a few weeks, especially when I understood, Understood, but Ramana Maharshi taught this in the past. In the Guru Kavai, in verse three, five, three, four, it says, "A dreamer sees many jivas in a dream, but all of them are not real. The dreamer alone exists, and he sees all. So it is with the individual and the world. There is the creed. There is the creed of only one self." which is also called the creed of only one jiva or soul. It says that the jiva is only one who sees the whole world and the jivas therein. Um, before I go on to the question, I need to clarify about this. This is not what is said in Guru verse type verse 543. What is actually said, what what um, what is actually recorded there is... Um, wait a second, I'll just find it... Um, uh, what Bhagavan said is let highly mature and courageous aspirants who have a bright and sharp intellect firmly accept, accept that soul, Jiva, is only one ekka and therefore thereby be established deep in the heart. Um, in the implication by investigating who am I, that one jiva. It is only to suit immature minds. But scripture generally say that souls, jivas, are many. Um, this is what is actually said there. What, um, but in, in the, in the translation by Venkata Subramaniam, which uh, was edited by David Godman, David Godman added a note in which he quoted a portion from talks. That portion, what, uh, what uh, Romaine quoted here, is actually a portion from talks, which is not so clear. That is in talk uh, number 571. Um, That's in two parts. The first part is undated and the second part has a date, 10th of November 1938. What is recorded there, but it is not at all clear. A question was asked why it was wrong to say there is a multiplicity of jivas. Jivas are certainly many, for a jiva is only uh, the ego and forms the reflected light of the self. Multiplicity of cells may be wrong, but not of jivas. That is uh, the introduction. And so that, that's reporting what was asked in, in but not in direct speech. Then what is recorded, but Bhagavan said is this portion that is uh, was written here, and that David had quoted in his note on this uh, verse uh, of this verse, that is Jiva is so is called so because he sees the world. A dreamer sees many jivas in the dream, but all of them are not real. The dreamer alone exists, and he sees all. So it is with the individual and the world. There is the creed of only the one. This, this is the bit which is unclear. There is the yeah. creed of only one self, which is also called the creed of only one jiva. It says that the jiva is only one who sees the whole world and the Jeevas therein. And then the devotee asked, the jiva means the self here. And it's recorded that Bhagavan said, so it is. But the self is not a seer. But here he is said to see the world. So he is differentiated as the Jeeva. This is not a clear recording. Um, that is, when Bhagavan spoke, he spoke very clearly. But often we find passages in talks where things are a little bit garbled. Mm-hmm. Th- that is there's no word in tamil self with a capital s the term bhagavan used in tamil generally is tan tan simply means oneself in some context it may refer to ourself as we actually are in some context it may refer to ego we need to understand from a context the sense in which mm-hmm. it's uh meant so here this is This is a very garbled recording here, but there's some good points here. The main point is, when Bhagavan was asked about this Ekajiva Vada, this this, uh, contention, but there's only one uh, jiva, he referred to the analogy of dream. This is the important point. A dreamer sees many jivas in a dream, but all of them are not real. Even that, the wording is not quite clear. What Bhagavan would say is in dream, we see many people. Because we, this jiva, jiva means the soul or ego, that is, as ego, we see ourselves as a person. And in dream, we see many other people. So, because we as ego take ourselves to be a person, we take every person to be an ego. So there seem to be many jivas. But all those jivas exist in the view of this one jiva, the dreamer. Um, so I'll now come to the, to the question that this person asks, uh, that R- Romain asks. He says, question, do I understand this correctly, that there's only the I am? the being who is reading this passage, and that no one else is real, but are only characters in my dream. How exactly should we view those we find around us, friends, relatives, et cetera? Are they not real? Okay, this is a very good question. Firstly, um, the, the question says, "Should I? do I understand this correctly that there is only the I am? We need to... When Bhagavan talks about jiva, he's not talking about I am. I am is our being. Our being is real. That alone is what is real. That is the ultimate reality. So whenever Bhagavan uses the term I am on its own, he's referring to our being. To, that's to our, to, our being is such it, the, the awareness of our being, or the, that is the the, the the pure being, pure awareness. That is what I am refers to. Jiva or ego is the is the false identification. I am this person, I am Romaine, I am Michael, I am Ted, I am whoever. So the the names um Romaine, Michael, Ted, all these are names referring to particular bodies because we take this body to be ourselves. Our experience now is I am this body. So when we are dreaming, we the whole dream is our own mental fabrication. But in the dream, we don't experience ourselves as a dreamer. We experience ourselves as a character in our dream, as a person in our dream. So we, we see ourselves as a person, and we see many other people, and those other people seem to be just like us because we take ourselves to be a person. So are those other people real? No, they are not. What about the person we take ourselves to be? This person we take ourselves to be is no more real than any of the other people we see. So the question, how should we view those we find around us, friends, relatives, etc., we should view them just as we view ourselves. If we take ourselves to be a person, then we should take those people to be selves just like us. We should. That is, so long as we experience ourselves as this body, we are so concerned about this body. If it's cold, we want to wrap up warm. If it's hot, we want to take off. We want to find you know, find some air conditioning or a nice fan or something. We want to cool off. If we're hungry, we want food. If we uh, if there's a strong urge to go to a toilet, we want to go to a toilet. So we are we are. We are so concerned about this body, providing for its every um, need, its every convenience. We give it nice, um, nice clothes. Nice, um, um, we may put perfumes on us. We we have bath. We take so much care of this body. If it's injured, we go to a doctor. We want medicine. We want. uh, We maybe undergo surgery. We 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 are so concerned about this body. Why? Why are we so much concerned about this body rather than so many other bodies in this world? Because this body is I. Those are others. So, so long as we take this body to be I, we should treat every other body as a person just like us. We should. So, so long as we're looking outwards, in effect, there are multiplicity of jivas. What Bhagavan says in this verse of Guruvachika Kavai is We should pay close attention to it. Um, uh, What he says is, let highly mature and courageous aspirants who have a bright and sharp intellect firmly accept that jiva is only one, and thereby be established deep in the heart. What that means is, if we understand that we are the only jiva, we should turn our attention within to investigate who am I. So for, for this teaching that there's only one jiva is to encourage us to turn our attention within. It shouldn't influence our behavior outwardly. When we are looking outwards and behaving in this world, we are behaving as a person. Every other person in this world is as real as the person we take ourselves to be. So we shouldn't attach more importance to this person than to any other person. So if we are hungry and someone gives us a, a bowl of food and some other hungry person comes, we should be happy to share our food with them because their need is just as great as our need. If I say no I, this is my food, I'm not going to give you. We are strengthening ego. We are strengthening the identification of ourselves with this body. So we should freely share. That's why Bhagavan says in the 19th paragraph of, who, of Nana, which, we'll be talk, which I'll be talking about next month, he says, whatever is given to others is given only to oneself. If this truth is known, who indeed will not give to others? So we we should be... Of course, others exist only when we take ourselves to be this body. In dream, we take ourselves to be a body, and so there seem to be others. In waking, we take ourselves to be a body, so there seem to be others. In in sleep, we don't experience ourselves as a body, and so there are no others. But so long as we identify ourselves as a body, there are others. And those others are just as real as the person we take ourselves to be. So, Bhagavan isn't teaching. But there's only one person. That would be absurd. There's obviously there's so many. There there are um, seven billion human persons in this world, and so many other persons in other forms—dogs and cows and cats and horses and elephants and fish and everything. They're all people just like us. They are all sentient beings. They're all jivas just like us. So when we look outwards, there are so many jivas. But since all this is a dream. All those many jivas appear in the view of this dreamer, the one jiva who now identifies itself as I am this person. So the the persons are many. And so long as we take ourselves to be a person, every person seems to be a jiva just like us. So when we're looking outwards, we should behave as if there are a multiplicity of jivas. We should be kind and considerate and, uh, mindful of the welfare of all others that is so so the, the question is how should I view my uh, fr- uh, uh, those we find around us, friends, relatives, etc.? We should treat them as friends and relatives, and we should treat everyone else as friends and relatives. We, sh- we, shouldn't, we should be equally kind to the stranger on the street, to, to, the, um, to uh, the friends and relatives we've known for years, because they all... Uh, so long as we, ta- we value the li- our life in this body it seems to us that every other living being values its life equally because i mean so long as there seems to be a multiplicity of living beings every living being values its own life so we have no we 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 should show the same concern for the life and for the welfare of others but we show from the life and welfare of the person whom we take to be ourselves so Bhagavan isn't saying that we, should, uh, that we should ignore our friends or relatives or anyone. We, of course, when we are looking outwards, behaving in this world, we should behave uh, kindly and lovingly to all. That is how we should. Be. But if we understand that all this is a dream, we should understand. But so long as we take ourselves to be a person, those other people are just as real. But am I this person that I seem to be? If I am the dreamer of this dream, then I'm not this person. Obviously, the person in the dream is not the dreamer. The person in the dream is a part of the dream. So the dreamer is the creator of the dream. But the dreamer takes itself to be a creature in the dream. So, So long as we are dreaming, we experience ourselves not as the creator, but as a creature. So we should behave in this world accordingly, with due respect for all other uh, creatures that we see around us all the other people we see both in human form and in non-human form we should treat all equally and be equally kind to all but is all this real does all this exist independent of our perception of it when we think deeply about it then we should turn our mind back within to find now i seem to be this person but is this person what i actually am It cannot be. If I was actually this person, I couldn't be aware of myself without being aware of this person. Now I take myself to be this body. In dream, I take myself to be some other body. Both those bodies seem to be the same person, but they're actually two different bodies. In sleep, I'm aware of myself without being aware of myself as a person at all. I'm not aware of any person. I'm not aware of anything other than my own being in sleep. So since I'm aware of my being in sleep without being aware of anything else, I cannot be anything other than my being. Therefore, who am I? I am only I, nothing other than I. But now it seems to us we're a person. So long as we take ourselves to be a person, and look outwards. We see many other people. We should treat all those people with the same with the same care and concern. Where we treat this person, does it stand I- to reason that Michael, that a person who's walking uh,
0: into an awakening experience, however you want to describe it, in other words, they get this, they're practicing this, uh, they're responding to it, and they're slowly but surely awakening. Does this mean that they then see the other seven billion people around them as slowly but surely awakening
1: also? No, no, it does. Uh, um, uh, uh, that is, when we look outwards, there are so many different types of people. Some people are kind and considerate and everything. Some people are very selfish. Some people are—we see all types of people in this world. Some people are very cruel. Some people take, even take pleasure in causing, hurting other people. There are all sorts of people in the world. So we we need to have discrimination. We need to discriminate. We, we we're not saying all people are equally good or equally bad. There are all variety of, of people in this world. As as Ramakrishna Paramahamsa said, God exists in all, but you shouldn't, for that reason, go and embrace a tiger. <laughs> so, so we we obviously, when we're dealing with this world, we need to deal with discrimination. If if we find someone who is um cheating people, for example, we should warn people: be careful of this fellow. He's a cheat. He's trying to he's trying to con you. So we we obviously we need to we need to. Um, behave in this world uh, sensibly. We need to be um, worldly wise, so long as we live in this world. So, we're we're not saying all all are equal. I mean, all are equally good or equally bad. We're saying all are equally sentient. All deserve equal care and concern. That doesn't mean we should help the thief to steal. It doesn't mean we should help the murderer to murder. It it means we we should see beyond the actions that Underlying that those evil actions, the same sentient being is there. It just so happens. As Bhagavan says in the 19th paragraph, which we'll be talking about next time, there are not two minds, a good mind and a bad mind. Vasanas are of two kinds: subhavasanas and a subasanas. Suba means um uh, agreeable, favorable, good, good as we can say. Asuba means disagreeable, unfavorable vasanas. So some people are under the sway, so Bhagavan says, when the mind is under the sway of subavasanas we call it a good mind. When it's under the sway of a vasanas, we call it a bad mind. That's all. So the, it's the vasanas that are good or bad, not the, not the jiva is good or bad. Wonderful. Some jivas still have very bad passions; they haven't yet overcome their bad passions. So we need to be wary of such people. But we, if if a man is a, a very cruel person and he's and he's uh, st- dying of starvation, we should be ready to give him food because, after all, he he's though he though he may be his mind may be full of very bad passions. He's hungry just like any other person is hungry, so we should be kind to all. But maybe we should lock him up in prison, because we know if he's let out of prison, he's going to be causing so much havoc to others. We lock him up in prison, we treat him kindly, give him food, give him, uh, let him exercise and everything, maybe give him books to read, maybe let him edu- get educated, maybe give him opportunity to reform him, But obviously, you don't allow him out on the streets to continue uh, uh, treating people. But we should still treat kindly. Excellent.
0: Follow-up questions, perhaps, to this important uh, point that was raised and answered quite well by Michael and Kay, if nobody has
3: a follow-up question. I have a follow-up question. Yes. Okay. Yes. Just one quick one, actually. Um, So I guess tying it all together... When it comes to a dream and all the many jivas that are having all the many dreams and there comes along Bhagavan or any other great Mahatma, great soul that comes to wake them up like the elephant in the dream. Um, there's, there, there's a passage, if it, it, it's kind of a long winded question, but if I could just read this passage, it's, it's actually in Guru v- Vachka Kovai in the David Godman version. Um, but I, it's not actually a Guru Vachka Kovai verse, but it's from letters from and recollections of Sri Ramanashramam. Um, and uh, if I could just read it really quick, it's, well, it's what, not too what, long.
1: What, which verse number are you referring to? Because I happen to have the well, book it's here. it's
3: actually in between verses 307 and 308
1: but it's in david godman's version david yeah, yeah Godman i've got I've, got I've got Robert. that here because it was I, I i referred to it today because of this um this question that was asked which was quoting something which wasn't in guru then i understood it must be from here so yes. three three zeros seven you say yes between three
3: zero seven three zero eight. Yes, it's yes um, com- comment on that yes it's a comment on it yes. and i i just i i guess to, just to tie everything all together the The role of the guru, the role of the Mahatma, the r- role of Bhagavan, and 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 his—you can say—purpose in. I mean, everyone that's become, uh, you know, um, influenced by Bhagavan or has, uh, was in the presence of Bhagavan, when, Bhagavan when he was alive, or has come across his teachings now, um, th- you know, the, the the Mahatma is said to awaken awaken you. And certain uh, Bhagavan has made it very, very direct and clear, focus on yourself, you know, be aware of the I, the I am in you. I mean, there's, there's, there's other, you can say Mahatmas that have, have said that, but then there's these, you know, other great souls as well, like Krishna, Rama, who have said very similar things, but not as direct. I mean, even Christ had said, you know, very, very, clo- you know, very, very powerful. I am quotes that you know, many, many, many Christians, you can say, may, might not comprehend as what what does that mean, unless they, I mean, maybe be, have become more, you know, uh, uh, more attuned to, to Bhagavan's teachings. But I don't know if there's a, a lost in translation effect. But what, I've never read this before in anywhere else, and I, I just want to read it to see if you know if you can comment on it and yeah. and just comment on oh, like, hit, the Read the Michael. Um, mm-hmm. Yes. Okay, read it. Bhagavan's uh, quote here. The Gita says in chapter 7, verse 17 of them, the best is the man of wisdom, constantly established in identity with capital M and E, me, and possessed of exclusive devotion. For extremely dear am I to the wise man who knows me in reality, and he is extremely dear to me. You see that what the Yani most likes is the I, he worships only that I. He is dear to me and I am dear to him. It means that Atma, which always says I, I, is dear. It is the same manner whenever in the Gita it is said, serve me, surrender to me, I am everything. It relates to the Atma Swarupa and not to the form wearing Sanka, Chakra, Gada, and the four arms. The references made by all Mahatmas to I are to that Atma Swarupa and not to the body. To them, nothing other than the self is evident.
0: Michael, your
1: reaction to that? Abs- absolutely. I, some of the wording here, I don't think is exactly Bhagavan's wording. For example, um, the last sentence, to them, nothing other than the self is evident. I think the term Bhagavan would have used there would have been atma sarupa. Atma means oneself. Swarupa means real nature. So, Atma Swarupa is the real nature of ourself. That is the term that Bhagavan used to refer to ourself as we actually are. When he want, because if you just say Atma, Atma is potentially ambiguous because Atma can refer to Ego also, depending on the context. But when Bhagavan wanted to specify our real nature, what we actually are, the term he used was either Swarupa or Atma Swarupa. So, um, and fortunately here in this translation, they've retained Atma Swarupa, because Surinagama would have, Bhagavan would have spoken probably in Tamil, Surinagama recorded it in Telugu, her brother translated it into English, so a lot gets lost along the way. So she recorded what she understood, her brother translated it according to his understanding. So we can't take this to be the exact words of Bhagavan, but the gist is very clear. Bhagavan is, is saying there, but what all of these sages are referring to when they say "I." They are referring not to themselves as a person. For example, you refer to Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. None come to the Father except through me. The, the, The Christians, ordinary Christians, take that to mean that I is referring to the person Jesus. So it's only through the person Jesus that you can reach God. But that same person Jesus said, for example, before Abraham was, I am. So that means that that person Jesus was not before Abraham. The Christian theologians will disagree and say, no, no, he's the the second person of the Trinity. He was always there. But if we set aside their, their particular interpretation of it, the person Jesus was born only some years previously, he was maybe in his 20s or early 30s. So he, he uh, but he, when he talks about I am, when he said before Abraham was I am, he doesn't mean that person Jesus was before I am. He means I am the, the eternal spirit I am. That is Atma Sarupa he's referring to. Um, uh, so, when when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he's not referring to himself as a person. He's referring to apma Likewise, with so many things that Krishna says in the Gita, when Krishna says, I or me, he's not referring to himself as a person. That is this verse. Um, I read David, uh, well, thanks to Subramaniam's translation from this book, uh, declaring... Know that if you take refuge in me, I will liberate you from bondage of the twofold karma. Lord Krishna, the ocean of grace, using Arjuna as an intermediary between him and us, asks us to take refuge in him. And then Murugana wrote a note. Here, Lord Krishna does not refer to a god who is worshipped in a particular form. It refers to the eternal reality that shines within, but shines with the illumination I. I. Um, Wait a second. It it wouldn't be I. This I hyphen I is always misleading. It means I am I. Wait a second. I'll just get the book and see what Murugan actually wrote there. Um, Because I've got Murugan's here also. Um uh, actually this um this note by Murugana was not written by Murugana, it was written by someone else, but it doesn't matter. What is said in the note is correct. Um and the word there is um okay. Anyway, it's not written by Murugana, but the idea is correct, but but that when when any god such as Krishna refers to I, he's not referring. He's not limiting himself to a name and form. That is, it's is upamāsarūpa, our own real nature, but appears in the form of Krishna, appears in the form of Bhagavan, and gives us teachings. So what what Bhagavan is, what is Surinagama recorded in, in in the gist of what she recorded, it's absolutely correct. It is it is referring only to um, that is, as I say, when Jesus says, I am a way of truth and the life that I am is not referring to him as a person. It's referring to what he actually is, which is Atmosarupa. And that is what we actually are. So ha- have, have I adequately answered your question, um, Michael? Or did you have something more to ask about that? I I was, yes, and at the same time, I'm just, I'm just wondering,
3: I mean, Bhagavan has made it very, very clear what that means. Yes. Like, when Krishna says, you know, I am the self of all selves. Yes. It's hard to translate that, like, how how does that relate to me? But Bhagavan has said, you know, when Bhagavan said, it is your own I, I mean, that is so direct, so intimate, so so it's like the arrow right in the middle of the target and it really hits you and and yet these are all other great mahatmas that have said similar things but there's i don't know there there, there's the the directness is not there that that it uh, it, it just seems like i don't know if there's a there's there's a translation issue or if there's you know just because the audience intended or the devotee that it was spoken to um you know it just wasn't Written there or expressed there in those same terms, and yet these are all still Mahatmas that have.
1: Yes, but uh, been be be very careful of Krishna. He's a notoriously tricky fellow, notoriously (laughs) tricky. In Gita, Krishna gave so many different teachings to cater for different people at different uh, levels of spirituality. But the very very deepest teachings, which are 100% 100% in tune with Bhagavan's teachings are given by Krishna in the Gita. Bhagavan has selected 42 verses from Gita, but even among those 42, n- not all of them are 100%, but there are a few I can point out. Bhagavan tri- one of the verses Bhagavan selected was... Um, was uh, Chapter two, verse 16, that is chapter, that is verse nine in Bhagavan's Bhagavad Gita Saram. That is extremely deep teaching. What Krishna says there is, there is never any existence of what does not exist. There is never any non-existence of what does exist. And, and then it goes on something about those who know this know the truth or something. But that is, a, that is the, the core principle of Advaita but only one thing exists. What exists must always exist. What does not always exist, does not actually exist even when it seems to exist. This is something Bhagavan often said. Uh, He often said, "If if something exists at one time and not at another time, it doesn't actually exist even when it seems to exist because if something exists, it must always exist. If something doesn't always exist, if it exists at one time and not at another time, that means it is not inherently existent, because it gains existence and it loses existence. Since it's not inherently existent, it borrows its existence from something else. So, But what actually exists must always exist. And it must be unchanging, Bhagwan like said, because if something is changing, it's one thing at one time, one thing at another time. So what exists must always exist. It must be unchanging. And most importantly of all, it must be self-shining. So that verse is, is the very core principle of Advaita. And it's it's perfect accord with Bhagavan's teachings. As far as the practice is concerned, Krishna expressed the practice of self-investigation perfectly in two verses of of the Bhagavad Gita, that is chapter 6, verses 25 and 26. He describes the practice of self-investigation in almost exactly the same words that Bhagavan used in Nana, keeping the mind fixed on oneself. He doesn't say this is Atma but he said, that is what you must do. And in his commentary, Shankara says this is uh, this this teaching is the this is the the teaching of the highest teaching of yoga. In other words, this teaching the, the ultimate practice. So Krishna can, in many places, Krishna expressed Bhagavan's teaching perfectly. But in many places, he gave many other teachings because Gita is a text which is meant for many people at many different levels of spiritual development. That's why many verses of Gita can be interpreted in different ways. Um, Bhagavan, even Bhagavan sometimes, I think Bhagavan often said things which are not his Core, core teachings, but he would often have to dilute his teachings to suit the people he's talking to. So if someone comes and asks a question, if they're not ready to, they're not willing to grasp the deeper teachings of Bhagavan, he will give them a teaching but is appropriate to them at their level of spiritual development. It may seem that is contradicting somebody else, but his deeper teaching, but it's what is appropriate for that person. But as you say, there's no one as clear and as consistent as Bhagavan. But uh, we shouldn't think, but it hasn't been said. Even Jesus has taught the practice of self-investigation very clearly in the Bible. If you you pay close attention, that everyone knows the verse, the kingdom of God is within you. But if you pay close attention to what he says there, he says, he's talking about the false prophets. He says, they will say, uh, lo, lo, look here look there but i say look see the kingdom of god is within you he doesn't just say the kingdom of god is within you he says look see that is a direct instruction to look within and see the kingdom of heaven there that is so <laughs> it is there but we miss it Oh, the majority of people missed it. It's only because of Bhagavan, but we're able to recognize it. Ah, yes, that is what he was talking about.
0: It's it's very helpful for me to see that this is performing a service I'm gaining from every conversation we have with you, Michael, uh, and having a lot of what I'm understanding a lot about my spiritual path is be careful about which interpretation on any of the scriptures or on any of the words or any of the answers to questions to Ramana, you're reading because they can easily differ from one another and sometimes rather significantly. And you point that out very clearly every time you're here. Yeah. So thank you. Take care and we'll yeah. see you in December, amazingly.
2: Yes. Yeah.
1: <laughs> oh, oh, and one more thing I'll add, because I referred to those two verses, verses 25 and 26 of chapter six of Bhagavad Gita, just yesterday with the Houston group they asked me to talk about those two verses so th- there's a video which i'll be posting within the next few days before i post this video the one okay. immediately before this one will be one on those two verses of the bhagavad-gita where krishna describes the practice of atmavichara perfectly well, he doesn't very... call it atmavichara but do you have the bhagavad-gita committed to memory no <laughs> you certainly <laughs> seem like you do <laughs> no i don't i don't i i know very very little i've spoken about the three verses i know very well and i also know one where uh, but uh, michael referred to where krishna says ahamakma gudakesha i am the self that is That's i am true. i am the self in the heart of every self well you're a real treasure. The self of all selves that one treasure. also bhagavan selected and translated
0: You're a real treasure. You always (laughs) give all the credit to Bhagavan,
1: and I'm I'm not giving the credit to him. It's his credit. I mean, the credit is due only to him. Who am I to give him the credit? I I just shouldn't take the credit from him. I'm trying to avoid taking the credit from him. When people put give the credit to me, I say no, no. It's it's only Bhagavan, not me. You're an intermediary. We accept that word. Even that I wouldn't accept. If Bhagavan uses a leaky pen to write his uh, beautiful verses, yeah. are we to say the pen is an intermediary? If you want, you can, but it's it's just that that pen is extremely blessed to have yeah. been chosen by Bhagavan to be the instrument of writing. So if he chooses me, that is by his uh, his infinite grace, because I am in no way worthy of of any such thing. <laughs>
0: You're too modest, but I'll say your words.
1: I'm not modest. I just Bhagawan has shown me very clearly what a what a worthless fellow I am. So I know very clearly it's not it's not it's not modesty. It's just um, it's just I've been forced. I would like to think of myself oh I'm very great, but I can't do so because Bhagawan has shown me so clearly, like the mirror held before a noseless man. He has shown me clearly um, all my defects.
0: <laughs> well, do me a favor. When you go to post this video, make sure you run it to the very end. So Okay, I will. I will. <laughs>